the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Al Fadi, and I hope you're having a fabulous Saturday morning. And uh, thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Let Us Reason. And if you have uh, been listening to our show from last week, you would have noticed that I am talking now about uh, topics uh, that are related to politics, government, and also biblical views on these kind of tough issues. Of course, if you're living in the U.S., this topic is absolutely hitting home today, sadly, because politics is infringing not only upon every day's uh, uh, every um, uh, person and every day's life, but also it's infringing upon the church in and of itself. It is becoming more and more clear everywhere I go and with others that I talk to that there has been divisions among their own members at their own churches, uh, even people in other states as well. So, uh, and and that really prompted me to just decide that we need to really uh, calm down. And we need to think straight according to God's word and his mandates for us as believers, obviously. With that in mind, what I am going to talk about today, since I gave kind of like an introductory point last time, I'm going to look at what I call the different views, different views that uh, are being held typically by believers. You have views that will say, uh, not, not necessarily biblical, but I'm saying how Christians have viewed government historically. There is a view that says the government should compel religion. And would, in other words, uh, the, uh, there has to be a state-endorsed religion, a religion that represents that particular government, if you wish. Example, you know, you go to Saudi Arabia and the religion of Islam is a religion that represents the government, its constitution, its sharia, and so on and so forth. Then you have another view that says the government should exclude religion. So there is complete and utter separation between any religious matters and any political matters. And then you have a view that says all governments are evil and demonic. And technically speaking, as believers, mind your own and avoid anything related to that. Not to get involved, basically. And another view that says just focus on evangelism, don't focus on politics. And another one says focus on politics and ignore evangelism. We are going to explore these views. And today we're going to talk about the first one, which is Christians on politics and the view that government should compel religion. Now, many Christians, by the way, held this view in previous centuries. And uh, this particular view uh, provided 
some sort of a momentum, if you wish, for a number of European wars of religion, both between Protestants and Roman Catholics and between Reformed and Anabaptist groups. These are religious groups that end up fighting, actually, which if you know anything about the Bible and the teaching of Christ, nowhere did Jesus ask us to fight one another. Love one another, he says, as I have loved you. For, you know, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. And yet when you do something like this and literally wars against each other and killing one another, how is that sending a message of love to the world? Obviously, it doesn't. Now, uh, here is also another thing that I would like to point out to. Over time, this view, of course, lost favor as more and more Christians realized that it was inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus and with the nature of faith itself, which is obvious. While it is no longer held by any Christian groups, there are other religions, obviously, in the world that still promote government enforcement of their religious beliefs. And I mentioned, of course, uh, you know, uh, Sharia law and certain Islamic governments who believe wholeheartedly that this is uh, the mandate of their own religion. So the compel religion view is used in this case as a justification when it, when religion, I should say, is representing governments. It is used as a justification to persecute other religions, and in this case, of course, Christians are no exception. They will be persecuted for their faith. In fact, they use Islam as, as a, uh, an example. Uh, there are many passages in the Quran that is considered to be the holy book of Islam that mandate and command fighting the unbelievers. That includes Christians and Jews. You know, example will be found in chapter 9, verse 29 uh, and 30. Uh, given a, a, a clear uh, justification for why the Christians and the Jews uh, as well are considered to be uh, unworthy uh, of uh, basically considered to be believers, that they are, uh, technically speaking, infidels, that uh, they ought to be fought for uh, their rejection of Islam. Now, in the U.S., of course, the support for religious freedom increased as uh, the country sought political unity uh, in spite of the variety of denominations and religions, by the way. We have example, of course, of uh, uh, congregational, uh, basically, um, uh, you know, um, system. We have Presbyterian system. We have Episcopal uh, leadership system, Quaker, you know. You have Jewish, Jewish background. You have Roman Catholics. You have Baptists. But in 19, uh, in, uh, I should say in 1779, the Virginia General Assembly passed the Virginia Act for establishing religious freedom. Now, Jesus, our Lord, distinguished the realms of God and of Caesar. I mean, this is commonly used all the time to justify, you know, separation of church and state. And you find this in Matthew 22, verses 15 to 21, which reads, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test? You hypocrites, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, And Christ basically identifies two different spheres of influence, civil government and religious life. This is the view, I should say, the view that we're talking about. We'll use this to try to justify the separation between the civil government and religious life. But let me ask you this question. Why were the religious leaders of Jesus' time carrying a denarius inside the temple that has an image of an idol? Why? I thought there is separation between the two. Apparently, for business matters, they have no problem using that. Just something to think about, of course. And while Jesus did not really specify any list of what technically belongs to the sphere of Caesar or government and what belongs to the sphere of the church or religion, the distinction signaled a system very different, by the way, from the Old Testament theocracy. The Old Testament theocracy, when applied to the people of God, God is the government over his people. You have the Ten Commandments, you have other commandments, and so on and so forth. But the intent in there really was to uh, distinct, make his people sanctified, distinct from others. In other words, it's the exact work of the Holy Spirit in us now that applies the laws of Christ in us and make us distinguishable. It's no different. However, looking at it from the outside, it appears that there has been a distinction in the New Testament from the Old Testament system. But when it comes to compelling, uh, using the, I should say, religion to compel people, um, that's a view that Jesus opposed clearly. In Luke chapter 9, for instance, we read in verses 52 to 55 the following incident. And he sent messengers ahead of him, that's Jesus, sent in some of his, uh, his own ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, why is that important for the Samaritans? Because they hated the Jews and they did not believe that he's the prophet they were anticipating as well, thinking that he is actually a Jew and he is asking people to turn their face toward Jerusalem and basically ignoring their religious system that is found in Samaria. Continuing in reading the scripture, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, meaning saw the reaction of the people and the rejection of Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. In other words, he, they said, hey, should we force them to convert? Should we ask God to punish them because they rejected you? And Jesus rebuked him for this. You see, Jesus is not about forcing people to accept him as Lord and Savior. Christianity is never about forcing people to accept him. All that Jesus did is present an invitation. Come to me, all you who are laden and heavy, uh, I should say laboring and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you. Uh, So it's an invitation. You have a freedom, basically, to choose You have the right to make that decision. Jesus never forced himself on anyone. And that's a clear 
example of how Jesus rejected this idea that religion can compel people to follow anyone, for that matter, but in this case to follow him. And if that's the case, then the government cannot compel people as a representative agent of the religion. They cannot compel people to reject a religion or to follow a religion. In fact, according to Romans 13, which we read last time, twice it is mentioned there between verses 3 and 5 that the government is a minister of God, used in the hand of God. And that, that would have given the government every right to compel people but God is not about the business of forcing people to follow him because the faith itself is not genuine. Why? Because true faith in God must be voluntary, cannot be forced. A clear respect for people's individual will and voluntary decisions also is seen throughout the ministry of Jesus himself and the ministry of the apostles. So it's all about voluntary decisions. It's not about uh, forcing people. For instance, let's take the incident in the chapter uh, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter two, verses one to twelve, when the friends brought their paralyzed or the paralytic friend who was lying down on a stretcher. Uh, no one really uh, forced him to come in. They brought him. In fact, it says that Jesus looked at their faith and praised that and says, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Because he can see the genuineness of their faith and what they have done, and especially for that paralyzed man, believing that Jesus can save him and heal him. So, a clear respect then for people's individual will was evident here, and voluntary decisions is seen throughout the ministry of Jesus and his apostle. They taught and reasoned with them. And then they appealed to the people to make a personal decision to follow Christ. We have these examples in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. As I mentioned, Jesus asking people to come unto him. In Acts 28, 23, when Paul was actually uh, preaching the gospel to some of the Judaizers uh, and some of the Hellenistic Jews, I should say, and others, uh, and they began to walk away from him. And all he can do is quote to them in verse 25 a prophecy that was given to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 starting from verses 8 to 10. He didn't enforce them. He didn't invoke, uh, uh, basically, uh, governmental authority over them. He did not ask, basically, soldiers to go and arrest them. None of that, basically. Romans 10, 9 to 10. uh, Clearly, that people have the right to make that confession of faith, believing that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you confess in your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Revelations 22.17 is no exception as well. So we have enough evidence in the New Testament to justify to us that Jesus and his apostles oppose the idea of compelling people to religion. Let me tell you this. You know, here's what's going on lately in the world of Islam. Because new discoveries right now are coming out to prove that the Quran actually is no other than a man-made book filled with corruptions and corrections and edits. That in and of itself flew in the face of this idea that the Quran is a perfectly preserved book. And because people in the Muslim world are forced to believe this idea, now they're coming to grip with this reality. And many of them are leaving Islam, becoming atheists. Some are coming to Christ. But it's been devastating. You see, because the faith in their view wasn't genuine, it was forced upon them. And now they're rebelling against it. 
And God is not in a business of forcing himself on anyone. It's a voluntary thing. And that parable where it represents the father who is having that wedding, sending his servants out to invite people. And then he says, go and invite anyone. And those who came uh, did not come in bringing their own righteousness with them. And when someone came unprepared and dressed up differently, they were rejected. So it's voluntary. They come in as they are, basically. The Old Testament laws require tithing to support the priests and the temple. Sacrifices every year. Leviticus 23 is an example. The punishment for the teaching of other religions in Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 to 11. These were only for the nation of Israel at that particular time, and they came to an end when Jesus established the new covenant. God did ask Joshua to fight idolatry, uh, in, the ca- in this case against the Canaanites, who were murderers of children by presenting them to their uh, idol god, Melech, uh, burning them literally on his hands, this idol. Uh, they put the babies on their, his hand to, and they will be burned. And uh, as a result of that, you know, uh, God invoked his punishment on them, but he waited 400 years for that judgment to be taken place. So we cannot really associate this uh, idea with forcing religion on people. Nowhere that the uh, Jews also ever force anyone to accept uh, the God of the Jews in the Old Testament. So all of these are clear examples of the fact that it flies against this notion of forcing people to convert. Also, the kingdom of Christ is not a worldly kingdom. In John 18, 36, during his trial, Jesus answered a question by Pontius Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would, be, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. You see, God basically is making it very clear. God is making it very clear here, our Lord, that his kingdom is not a physical one. Now, that's what got also the the apostles confused because they were thinking of a physical kingdom. Now, we know about the millennial kingdom, and I'm not saying a physical kingdom won't be established at some point, and we know that he will be on the throne forever. We're not denying any of that, but the kingdom in itself right now that we're living is at least in its spiritual phase, uh, phase, I should say. It's a spiritual kingdom, not of this world. And when it comes, also will be a different kingdom because it's not like the worldly kingdom. And that's extremely important for us to keep in mind. Jesus wasn't attempting, by the way, to establish an earthly kingdom like the Roman Empire. That's why the, uh, the, the apostles in Acts uh, 1, verses uh, between verses 1 and 4, they ask, when will you establish the kingdom of Israel or reestablish the kingdom of Israel? They were thinking a physical one, and he rebuked him and says, it's not for you to know the time. You know, focus now on what is important. You will receive power from above, he says in verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in, all, in Jerusalem, all of Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the mission that we have right now. Bring people to a saving knowledge and salvation. Then, in this case, his kingdom still affects the world, transforming and overcoming the world. 1 John 3, 8 teaches this. Uh, And uh, 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5 teaches this. 
through what? Through change in people's heart, through the deep convictions by the Holy Spirit and the gospel message, but not through military, by the way, power. It's the power. The word of God is that sword. It's the word of God, metaphorically speaking, is that sword that pierces the heart and pierces, uh, uh, you know, the soul and cuts through the bone and the marrow. It's spiritually, metaphorically speaking. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But nowhere that Jesus ever commanded anyone to use the sword. In fact, he says, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Yes, he did use the sword as a metaphor that a family will split against each other when members of its family accept Jesus and others reject him. That was a metaphorical thing. He wasn't talking about waging war, if you wish. So, what are some of the practical implications then of rejecting the compelled religion view? Government should never attempt to force people to follow or believe in one specific religion, but should guarantee freedom of religion for all, for all the followers of all religions. Believe it or not, this is biblical. Christians in every nation should support freedom of religion and oppose governmental compulsion of religion. Complete freedom of religion should be the first principle of Christian political involvement. I know you're going to think like I'm sounding weird to you, but that's what our Lord taught us. We ought to respect others. They're all made in the image of God. We present the truth to them, but at the end of the day, we cannot compel them or force people to accept him. He is after genuine heart and genuine faith. Government should not provide financial support to one person church, for instance, or one entity, just because they are sanctioned by the government and they represent the government and deny it from others. That's not freedom of religion. That's favoritism. That's against not only the Bible, but in political realm, it's against the Constitution in the U.S. as well, and probably in other nations who apply and adhere to these kind of things. So what about giving some tax benefits, by the way, to churches? I mean, those benefits do not compel religion in any meaningful sense. There is no specific denomination or religion is given preferential treatment, by the way. And similar tax benefits are available even for other nonprofits who are not religious at all. So you cannot say this is a form of compelling religion. Not at all. This is just a benefit that nonprofits receive, whether they're religious or not religious anyway, whether they're Christian or other faith as well. You can go and investigate this. So the reason for this preferential tax treatment for churches and for charities is that they are considered to promote the general welfare. Promoting the general welfare. That's what it's all about. Okay. So the spiritual influence behind compelled religion view. What is that? If government compels non-Christian religions, then it often leads to persecution of Christians. If you are compelling one religion over Christianity, then the Christians ultimately will end up being persecuted. We have plenty of cases in the world that support the persecution of Christians simply because the other religion opposes them and opposes them sharing the gospel. If government compels people to become Christians, then it drives out really true Christianity and genuine faith. We have a true, clear case of this when the Roman Empire adapted Christianity as its official religion. And soon enough, within a couple of hundred years, the Christian church, the Roman Catholic church, became a governmental authority 
and imposing persecution on others. That's not God's plan, and that's not grace, and it shouldn't be difficult then to discern the real spiritual influence behind compelled religion approach as one that seeks to destroy true Christianity, and that's Satan. With that in mind, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you're enjoying this new series. This is uh, the second episode of possibly multi-episodes talking about uh, basically uh, government, politics, and the Bible, and a biblical view on these important issues. Uh, As always, I remind you to go to uh, our website, sierrainternational.com, that's C as in Charlie, C-I-R-A international.com, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Sierra International, and consider... Uh, If the Lord allows you to become a Patreon supporter or give through PayPal, we are thankful and grateful for your support. Until we meet again, have a blessed day.